So the reading today is from uh, 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, verse 12 to uh, chapter 2, verse 4. Indeed, this is our boast. The testimony of our conscience is that we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially towards you with godly sincerity and purity, not by human wisdom, but by God's grace. For we are writing nothing to you other than what you can read and also understand. I hope you will understand completely. Just as you have partially understood us, we are your reason for pride, just as you are also ours in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of this confidence, I plan to come to you first so that you could have a second benefit and to visit you on my way to Macedonia then to come to you again from Macedonia and to be helped by you on my journey to Judea. Now, when I planned this, was I of two minds? Or what I plan, do I plan in purely human way so as to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? As God is faithful, our message to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaim among you, Silvanius, Timothy and I did not become yes and no. On the contrary, in him it is always yes. For every one of God's promises is yes in him. Therefore, through him we also say amen to the glory of God. Now it is God who strengthens us together with you in Christ and who has anointed us. He has also put his seal on us and given us the spirit in our hearts as a down payment. I call on God as a witness in my life that it was to spare you that I did not come to Corinth. I did not mean that we lord it over your faith, but we are workers with you for your joy because you stand firm in your faith. In fact, I made up my mind about this. I would not come to you on another painful visit, for if I cause you pain, then who will cheer me other than the one being hurt by me? I wrote this very thing so that when I came, I wouldn't have pain from those who ought to give me joy, because I am confident about all of you that my joy will be yours. For I wrote to you with many tears, out of extremely, an extremely troubled and anguished heart, not to cause you pain, but that you should know the abundant love I have for you. It's good to be back with you this morning as we uh, continue to really begin our series in 2 Corinthians, the teaching series that we're starting for this year. And uh, some feedback from last week, uh, this is an intense series. Yes, it is intense. Uh, it is intense because we're talking about real life and we're trying to make sense of our weakness that has been very exposed in our own hearts in the last two years. And into that weakness, we are injecting the power of the gospel and so, yes, it does feel intense at times. And uh, this passage, uh, again, which might read a little strangely, will find intense in various ways. Uh, even as I was thinking about, uh, you know, where Paul is at and what he's being accused of and how people are saying to distrust him, I wonder if you might 
think of that moment when you started doubting whether a person was who they said they were. Uh, you know, that might have been early on for me. I said I was going to come on the 16th of January. Uh, <laughs> for those that are new, I had COVID and had to delay my start. Um, actually, for those that are new, I'm the new senior pastor here. But uh, anyway, uh, but more seriously, uh, you know, you might think of those moments where things are stopped adding up. And maybe you became sort of that, that moment where sort of that naivety sort of lifted. And you're like, oh, there's something more going on here. Uh, I think that's growing up in many ways, isn't it? But sometimes we see how people aren't walking the talk. And it grieves me that over the last couple of years, it feels like a whole bunch of, of, you know, significant leaders in the Christian church across the world have been exposed in various ways. Uh, You might think of a couple of big names. Ravi Zacharias was was a big one for me, uh, but there are many others. And, uh, you know, it's at that moment where where the church is dragged into disrepute uh, and where... Where the gospel is, you know, here are people who are supposed to be living out a standard that, that is extraordinary, that points to Christ. In this age of deconstruction, some people are also kind of rethinking about God. I'm not, God isn't really who I thought He was, you know, and so on it goes. And there's all kinds of reasons for that, when kind of the ground falls out from underneath you and God wasn't there. Um, but, but I'm helping us think about trust, the complication of that, and what happens when we're under pressure. Friends, we need to have confidence in, who, in the people we place our trust, and, and I think we also need to have a steadfastness when we are under pressure and when things start shifting. Well, this passage is going to speak to all of that, both how we wrestle with uh, an integrity under pressure and how we kind of how we reapproach people and others when, uh, when things look maybe more complex or maybe don't live up to our standards. So this passage is about Paul, he's under fire. The church he writes to are starting to doubt Paul is who, he, uh, is, is who they thought he was. And like I said last week, Paul's very specific circumstances are quite different to ours. But what's the same is the human condition and the gospel. Uh, I'm going to be speaking about gospel integrity today uh, and how we respond under pressure in grace. Now, the context, um, like any passage that we come to uh, in Scripture, uh, we want to ask questions about, you know, why is Paul writing this? What's the context that he's writing to and what's the main point he's putting forward? And you can use those questions for any passage of Scripture. But I wonder, as, we, um, as Catherine read this out for us, I wonder if you felt like you only got half the story. Did you feel that? Like, if Paul, there's a whole bunch of stuff going on that Paul's speaking to me, like, what's, what's going on, Paul? But I think in this particular case, it's, it's reasonably easy to mirror read what the circumstances might be and what Paul is speaking into. So keep the Scriptures open or kind of a, an app if you're using that. Um, you know, so if, so if we look at, say, chapter 2, verse 4... You know, we, we get this idea that, uh, that Paul has written uh, a couple of letters even, so 1 Corinthians and probably another letter as well, and, uh, and he wrote those with many tears and an extremely troubled and anguished heart. He's writing to them as a pastor who has deep concerns. Uh, if we jump back to verse 16, we're just sort of filling out some context here. Uh, we read um, that he wanted to visit them on the way to Macedonia and then on the way back again. But, 
if we look again in chapter, beginning of chapter 2, I made up my mind this, I would not come to you on another painful visit. He wants to give them some space. We all know what that feels like when you kind of, you know, there's a bit of complexity in the relationship. I just need some space. I need some space. But in this context, there's, there's the human factor because Paul, because the, the, the Corinthians are starting to, uh, in this context, starting to wonder whether Paul is who he says he is. They think he might even be a little two-faced. And we look at how Paul is addressing that and sort of trying to mirror read again. Uh, verse 12, our conscience is clear. We've conducted ourselves in this world and especially towards you with godly sincerity and purity not by human wisdom or by God's grace. So we get the feeling that he's being accused of not being sincere, uh, not having integrity or purity, that he's relying on worldly wisdom and he's got some other strategy at play. They're kind of accusing him of an agenda. Or even so to verse 18, when we get the whole yes, no, no, yes thing, uh, they're accusing Paul that he's just not able to follow through on what he said he would do. And how foundational is that to trust? When you trust someone... You know, you start early, that you know, you hope they do what they say they'll do, and then you trust them some more. And at this point, they're starting to accuse Paul that he's just not really up to it. He's not who he says he is, he's not who they thought he was, and it's starting to go a bit south. So Paul is an apostle, he was commissioned by Christ to teach the gospel, uh, to be as a missionary, to raise up new churches, of which Corinth is a church plant, and he loves them. And the way he has sort of exposed some truth, some hard truths in love, made them deeply uncomfortable, has caused a lot of friction in the relationship. And I have no doubt that Paul felt a great deal of pressure. You know, the pressure of kind of, you know, a father towards uh, a, a sort of their children, when things are starting to go off the rail and, and they're kind of uh, the, the disrespecting and it's getting a bit complicated. But I think, you know, not only is his reputation on the line, but... Uh, he's deeply concerned that the Corinthian church are looking towards other not-so-gospel preachers. And so he has, a, he has a, a gospel concern here as well. And we all know what it's like to be under pressure, right? Particularly if something close to our heart is triggered, like our reputation, like the goal is being undermined, that goal that we are putting all of our energy into... You might think of a few examples of kind of, you know, how you've responded, how you've been triggered and how you've sort of got to reel yourself in a little bit. And so it would be entirely appropriate for Paul to say something like this, you entitled jerks, I'm an apostle, you're wrong about me, show some respect, you're in the wrong here and and, and you've accused me, uh, which is further evidence of your immaturity. Can't you see that I'm doing this for your good? comes a little bit close to the bone as a parent, um, but uh, that's not what he says, is it? It's not at all what he says. You don't even like, not only does it not say those words, but the tone is completely different to what we find in this passage. What we do find is a, is a grace-filled integrity, one that is not so easily triggered, but continues patiently to serve and love. Look at what he says in verse 17. Uh, or was I, f- uh, sorry, not, is that verse, uh, he says, was I fickle, that's in, in, my, in the NIV, was I fickle, uh, but he says, uh, in his defence, he doesn't really push, I am right and you are wrong, instead, his defence is the gospel, 
is grace. And let's see that together. We're going to dig particularly into the core of his, you know, you might call it defense, but really the gospel from verse 18 onwards. First of all, he reminds them that God is faithful. As God is faithful, he writes, our message to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus, Timothy and I, did not become yes and no. On the contrary, in him it is always yes. For every promise, uh, for every promise, uh, for every one of God's promises is yes in Christ. Now, while some might have misconstrued Paul's motives, seen a yes when he said no, or a no when he said yes, Paul wants them to see something very, very clear. That the Christ preached is a resounding, irrevocable, consistent, clear, and present yes. Always yes. Now, this is not like some kind of weird parent yesterday, I've not practiced this thing, some kind of day where whatever the kids say, you say yes to, that sounds messed up to me. But this is, uh, no matter uh, how many promises God has made, this is a, they are yes in Christ. Friends, we're hitting some bedrock here. And as we look at kind of some of the things, the grand story of the Old Testament, You know, we see things like, for the Lord God will not abandon you, nor forsake you. That's Deuteronomy. That's yes in Christ. In Psalm 62, God says, I am your rock and salvation. That is yes in Christ. In Jeremiah, God says, I will restore you. That is yes in Christ. In Exodus, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Zechariah, and so many places, God says, you are my people and I am your God. That is yes in Christ. In Genesis 12, God promises, bless, uh, promises Abraham, I will make you a blessing to the world. That is yes in Christ. Throughout the whole story of the Bible, the story of salvation, the, God of, the story of God pursuing a people to make them His own, to bring them into salvation, what do we find? We find two consistent things. We are unfaithful and God is faithful. And for every time it looks like we've thwarted God's plans, His promises... We find again and again that God, in His creativity and faithfulness, finds a way to make Himself glorified and draw us back to Himself. God has given us His yes in Christ. Yes, He is for us. Yes, He has forgiven us. Yes, He has given us new life now and forever. See, see, the gospel is not a get yourself sorted and then come to me, and it'll be a yes then. Now, the gospel starts with a yes, that while we were sinners, while we were enemies, Christ died for us. Who gives a yes straight up? God in Christ. And so, no matter what your story is here this morning, no matter how disintegrated you are, or whether you think you've got your life all together, whether you're a believer, or whether you're exploring Jesus... God holds out a yes to you in Christ if you put your trust in Him. Yes, yes, yes. Paul goes even further to unpack what this means. Verse 21 and 22. Now it is God who strengthens us together with you in Christ and who has anointed us. He has also put His seal on us and given us the Spirit in our hearts as a down payment. 
This is extraordinary. It's because you've been saved by grace that God actually puts His mark on you to say, you are mine. I am investing in you. I am lavishing my Spirit upon you that I might work in you, with you, for you, from the very beginning. And so no matter how messy the Corinthian church is, Paul is able to say yes to them and that we're in this together. I mean, sometimes at church you might have a feeling sitting in the pews, well, not pews, they're kind of, they're nice padded chairs, don't get too comfortable and sleepy, but uh, you might get the feeling that like, oh, those guys on stage, they've got their life together, they're kind of like the super Christians and here I am all messy and I'm, nobody knows that and it's kind of, I'm just going to try and hold face a little bit. Yeah, I feel, I see a few nods there. This is what Paul says, we are in this together, we are both saved by grace He's able to address them as equals, even as He prompts them and spurs them. Now it is God who makes both of us and you stand firm in Christ. I wonder how this would change dialogue in communities, Christian communities, even non-Christian communities, if we were able to find this kind of bedrock together. That every time there was a disagreement or a frustration or relational tension, we're at least able to find a bedrock. And that bedrock is only grace. Hear Paul's words. He is saying, my heart is not divided toward you because God's heart is not divided toward you. If you belong to Christ by faith, then everything God could possibly give you for your good, has been signed over to your account in Christ. That's kind of what he's saying. I'm not divided toward you. God's not divided toward you. Paul has taken them back to the gospel, back to bedrock. And to see how much, how much more extraordinary this is, as opposed to just turf wars about you're right, I'm wrong. Paul's still able to hold them to account, but he primarily takes them back to the gospel. And that totally changes the way that we live together. Paul's able to rely not on worldly wisdom, not in turf wars, but in God's grace, knowing that he's saved by grace, knowing that they're saved by grace. And there's a freedom in that, there's a liberation in that. So what does it look like as we kind of we just tease out Paul's own example towards them? as we explore this integrity, this kind of grace-filled life? Well, first and foremost, if we go back to verse 21, he's able to exhort them to live by faith. It is God who strengthens us to help us to stand firm in Christ, stand firm in faith. That should be our encouragement to ourselves as we preach to our own hearts, but also to others. In hard times, when there's relational friction, brother, sister, let us stand firm in faith. For it is Him that changes us. It's Him that's going to work this out. It's Him that we find our yes in. And out of that, I mean, I'm just, I'm amazed at His, his persistence here. I mean, it would have been so easy for Paul to say, well, I've planted a lot of churches and I guess a few go off the rails. You know, you've got to break an egg to make an omelette kind of thing, right? Um, but, but he doesn't. He, he, he pursues them out of love in the same way that God pursues us out of His love when we go off the rails. He, 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 is, he is persistent because 
He longs to see a gospel reconciliation, and we'll see that unpacked in later chapters, a ministry of reconciliation. And where does all that come from? The gospel, because God's yes to us is in Christ. God has been reconciling us in Him. And so that can profoundly shapes Paul's life and ministry. This kind of living in grace has, has grit. Paul's not worried about what people care, what, what people think of him. He doesn't care about what people think of him, he cares about people. What would our life look like if we were able to sort of pull those two things apart? Because so often when we care about people, we also care what they think of us. No, Paul is able to pursue them through, through grit, <laughs> because he cares deeply for them. I mean, that just oozes out in that chapter 2, for, for I have caused you pain uh, and, and, he, and he's grieving and yet, they also give him joy, and the love that he has for them, that is flowing out of his heart, is just so evident. But he's not triggered by what they think of him. He just simply cares for them in Christ. And again, uh, looking at that end of the passage from chapter 2, that the joy, I, I can't believe Paul is able to so quickly talk about joy in the midst of being accused, in the midst of this church going off the rails, and yet there it is, and that comes from the gospel, from grace. It doesn't come from his circumstances. But what I love about Paul here is he has a gospel integrity. What does living in grace look like? It does look like a certain integrity. Paul is able to say, I serve you under the Lord who is faithful and steadfast. And the more we serve the Lord who is faithful and steadfast, the more we look like Him, the more we look like Christ. And the more Christ brings all things of our life under Him, so that we might have a gospel integrity, so that people are actually just able to look at us and say, there is something different about these people. There is something whole about this people. And that's why it pains me to see so many church leaders publicly drag the gospel through the mud because their lives are disintegrated. Friends, we are called to a gospel integrity, but it's not pull yourself up by your bootstrap stuff, it's living in grace, day after day. Friends, are you living in the fullest enjoyment of God's yes to you in Christ? Let me say that again. Are you living in the fullest enjoyment of God's yes to you in Christ? There might be something to ponder this week, for all the kind of negative self-talk and all the kind of struggles, are you living out the, the fullest enjoyment of God's yes to you in Christ? But, but as I say this stuff and as I hold up Paul and his example, I, I, wonder, I wonder if you're even more aware of just how disintegrated you are, <laughs> instead of the integrity that we long for, how quick we are to accuse, to snipe others, ourselves, and I wonder even under pressure over the last couple of years, whether we've gone down some dark paths as we've tried to numb and overcome the issues in our lives. Maybe you're just feeling like God isn't present like He used to. And the more we speak of kind of a gospel integrity, the more we hold out the brilliance of Christ, the more it kind of feels distant at times. Friends, this is the place of shame. And sometimes it's the work of, of the Holy Spirit bringing things to your attention, but sometimes we just ignore that and we just sit in shame silently, quietly, 
Friends, we are certainly disintegrated. We do not, in our own terms, have the integrity that Paul speaks of, that God longs for us. And we certainly long, it's a human thing, to long to be made whole again. But we just go about it in all the wrong ways. All of this stuff is the talk of trying to approve yourself, trying to judge yourself, trying to give yourself the yes. Let's leave that behind. Because Christ has already given you the yes and amen. His word is final. We are called to not live in our own strength, but in grace. What does that look like? Well, it looks like repentance. It looks like actually acknowledging that it is only in Him that we find yes, that we find life. And for all the ways that we've stumbled, fallen and gone our own way, just like we prayed the prayer of confession before, it's about bringing that all to Christ, saying, I'm sorry for the way I've let you down. I've dishonored you. Will you forgive me? And we know what the answer is. Yes, in Christ. It looks like a humility, not a forced humility, like it's a virtue to pursue, that's sort of becoming more and more evident uh, in just daily life, but no, 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 this is a, a, a humility that comes from living for Christ. Paul says in verse 24 of chapter 1, not that we lord it over you, even kind of in his, you know, role as an apostle, even as he holds himself out as one who is living a gospel integrity while they are not, he does not lord it over them. Why? Because he knows they're all saved by grace. And so he doesn't need to play that game. He doesn't need to outperform them in humility. He just says, we're in this together, I don't lord it over you. In, uh, in his previous letter, uh, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 4, he goes even further on this to say, let me just bring it up here for you. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, uh, he says, For I am not conscious of anything against myself, but I am not justified by this. It is the Lord who judges me. Uh, he's, he's, not, he's taking himself out of the human courtroom, the human courtroom where, where he might be the judge or other people might be the judge. He's like, that's done and dusted. Jesus is the judge and he's given me a yes. And so I'm just going to live that out. And friends, there is a freedom and a liberation that comes from that. C.S. Lewis calls that a kind of a, a self-forgetfulness, where we can just stop worrying about ourselves as we live with other people and just get on with serving them, of loving God and loving our neighbour. That's what it looks like to live out grace, even under pressure, especially under pressure. Let us let God reintegrate us. For every time we become more aware of our weakness, our disintegration... Let us come back to the promises in this beautiful letter that in our weaknesses, God's strength is made perfect. And I'm going to keep hammering away at that because it's a hard truth to let sink into our heart. We don't like weakness. We don't like that we're weak. And yet, let us, let us, let God make us whole again. Let us come under that consistent, present, clear, irrevocable yes in Christ that we might find our joy in Him have you said yes to God's yes to you? <laughs> and so through Him, the Amen, the truly, truly, is spoken by us to the glory of God. Let me pray.
Oh, Father, we come before You as the one who knows our hearts. And uh, we know all the ways that we are divided, that we are disintegrated. And yet, in Your love for us, You have poured out Your Spirit upon us to make us whole, to call us to Yourself. Let us find the freedom and the joy in that, so that we might get on with loving You more and loving those around us, the people You've placed around us. Father, use these last couple of years, use our experiences to help us to know You more, to cherish Your faithfulness and to live for You all our days. Amen.